Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Weekends. We are once again here with Sven Longshanks and plan to present Bible Basics Part 9, I believe this is, or, or will be. Part 8 hasn't even broadcast at Christagenia yet. That will be this evening. And Sven and I are actually a week ahead of ourselves, which... It is pretty convenient for me because I need to be a week ahead of myself. <laughs> That's something I haven't been in a long time. We hope today to discuss Paul of Tarsus and his role, his actual role in the promotion of Christianity, the actual reasons why he promoted Christianity, what his actual goals and purposes were. Paul of Tarsus is probably, I, 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 I mean, one of the three most misunderstood figures in history. And I would rank him right up there with Jesus Christ himself and Adolf Hitler as being misunderstood. And they are all misunderstood for the same reasons that all of the propaganda about these three men are published by Jewish sources and seen almost exclusively through the lens of Jewry and not apart from the Jewish filters. Apart from the Jewish filters on all of our media, in all of our academia, and this has been going on for much longer than recent times. This has been going on for 2,000 years. Apart from those Jewish filters, history and the Christian religion are much clearer, are crystal clear. Hello, Sven. Thank you for being here. Hi, Bill. Yes, uh, glad to be here once again. I'm looking forward to discussing Paul. I mean, um, the first time I really came across you, you were doing a series called Against the Paul Bashers which was specifically uh, going against these people that, that uh, run Paul down, and even people in Christian identity that run Paul down. But, but mainly, it seems to me to sort of spread from the idea that, that Paul was a Jew. And there, there was even a, a small faction in the NSDAP that thought that Paul had, had Judaized Christianity. But apart from that, I really can't see why it is that people have this negative view of him because he's quite clearly, quite clearly a nationalist. And even if, um, even if you don't understand the Christian identity message, you can see that Paul is a, is very proud of his nation. He cares a lot about his nation. Once you understand Christian identity, you, you understand that he's talking about, uh, he's talking about Israel and Judah and he's talking about the, the nations that were promised to Abraham and how they're, they're all a part of Israel, as we've discussed in the last couple of episodes. But even if you don't understand that, you can see that he is, he is a nationalist. So I don't really understand what this, this negative view about him was for. And I think the, this, the whole Christian identity message that, um, the, the nations of Europe, that, that they are, they are all actually from Israel. I think that was an essential part of, of Paul's actual conversion. I, I think when, when he saw the light and when he was blinded for three days, I think that was a, a really essential part of it that the mainstream church is just missing out on completely well well the the nationalist christians have used paul as a scapegoat 
for Christianity becoming universalized. That's the, the attitude of a lot of Christian identity people that don't understand Paul, that bash Paul because they feel it's his fault that Christianity was universal. And that is a wayward attitude. That That is an attitude based on virtual ignorance of Paul himself. But they have that ignorance because of the way the universalist churches, the traditional Catholic and, and Orthodox churches and the Protestant churches that follow them have taught Paul of Tarsus and have translated Paul of Tarsus. I've translated the entire New Testament and I, I have found very, very few mistranslations in Matthew and Mark and even that there's a few more in John, but not many, but Paul is the most mistranslated portions of the scripture. And I really believe that those mistranslations occurred because the churches simply couldn't teach or didn't want to believe what Paul was saying. That I'm makes sorry. a lot of sense. That that makes a lot of sense. I mean, when you actually look, I mean, I, I I'm a big fan of the King James Bible. I think it's I think it's a wonderful translation. But when you when you when you're actually reading it and you're reading, so, take Romans for instance. When you're reading Paul's letter to the Romans, there are bits in it that are so confusing. It, it's so hard to read. When you understand, like say that bit the other week when he was that we were talking about with um, Esau. I think it's Romans nine. When you when you read that in the King James, it it, it, it is confusing. When you understand that there are there were the children of Esau that were also in Judea at the time, then you can understand it and it becomes clear. But if you don't know that and you're just reading through it, it, it can be very confusing, almost as if they've, they've deliberately used confusing language and, and put commas in places where they shouldn't be and full stops where they shouldn't be, that sort of thing. Well, well they have used a lot of deliberately confusing language. Let, let me... Let, let me use, because Luke, Luke's writing, which is the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts, and when I say Luke, I mean the Gospel plus the Book of Acts, because that's really like um, Luke Part 2. That Luke's writing also has purposeful mistranslations in it. But in other places, the, the translators just couldn't get it wrong. And, and, and in those other places... Paul's um, message and purpose are revealed and conflict with the way that Paul is generally interpreted. One place where Paul's message and purpose are revealed very plainly is in Acts chapters 26, in, in Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7. And Paul is addressing Herod Agrippa II and defending himself. And he says that he's being persecuted and he's in bonds, which in chains, for the hope of the promises made to the fathers and, and for, for the hope of the 12 tribes of Israel on account of the promises made to the fathers and for the hope 
of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's why Paul said he was in chains. Now, anybody who understands ancient history should understand that those 12 tribes of Israel had not been present in Palestine since 586 BC and even before that, going back to the middle of the 8th century BC, when the Assyrian deportations of the northern 10 tribes actually began. So how is Paul in chains for the hope of 12 tribes? And he's not in chains for the hope of the world or, or any other people. He specifically focused on those 12 tribes because they were the recipients of his messages all along. Now, that, there's, that, that is a very clear scripture that most Judeo-Christian pastors won't touch because they can't, that they can't understand it. And Paul goes on to say, and on account of that message, that he's being persecuted by the Jews. So when you read Acts chapter 26, verses 6 and 7, you have to come to the realization that Paul's purpose was for these 12 tribes and that these 12 tribes are not the Jews and that the Jews are not the 12 tribes. That is exactly true, but the mainstream universalist churches have never understood that message and the causes of that go back to the early persecutions of Christianity at the time of Paul and, and in the subsequent centuries. Because true apostolic Christianity was persecuted out of existence. I'm going to give another example and, and compare two translations, the King James Version translation and my own translation of Acts chapter 9 verses 15 and 16. In the King James Version, it, it basically said, but the Lord said unto him, go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings, comma, the Gentiles, comma, and kings, comma, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And this is um, this is Christ in the heavenly realm talking to Ananias, who had who had um, taken Paul in after his vision on the road to Damascus and took care of him in in Damascus. So translation. And I could establish the grammatical reason for this. It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a vessel chosen by me who is to bear my name before both the kings, both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, not and the children of Israel, but of the sons of Israel. And in my commentary on the book of Acts, I discussed this difference for several paragraphs because there's a greek grammatical construction here called a hendiatrison a hendiatrison means one by means of three there's a more common 
um, Greek grammatical construction that's a hendiadis, meaning one by means of two, where two different things are connected, two different um, objects or, or are connected with a with a um, a conjunction, but the definite articles are arranged in a way that it shows you that these two different objects actually refer to the same entity. And that's, that, that is a, a grammatical construct that's been recognized by grammarians for, for centuries and centuries. It's common in, in, um, Greek literature. So a hendiatricin is one by means of three. These three things are all describing the same entity in the Greek grammar. And, and that's the nations of the sons of Israel, the kings of the sons of Israel, and, and the sons of Israel themselves. It's translated, I would assert that my translation is proper, and it's clearer, and it's more accurate according to everything that Paul had written. He, Paul was to bear the name of Christ before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. The sons of Israel are not a separate entity from the nations and kings that were to receive the gospel. They were the nations and kings that were to receive the gospel. And Paul bashers within Christian identity simply haven't studied the Greek language, and they take for granted that the mainstream translations of Paul of Tarsus are correct. The mainstream translations, even going back to the Geneva Bible, have not been correct, and that is because the interpreters, the Christian interpreters, have always Look at the scripture through that Jewish filter, assuming that the Jewish claims to identity are true, that all the tribes of Israel are Jews, and therefore these Gentiles must be some sort of separate entity who are saved by grace, something that the scripture does not promise ever. Never. Does the scripture say that any other nations besides Israel are going to receive the grace of God? All of the prophecies concerning the grace and mercy of God are exclusively promised to the children of Israel, to the descendants of these ancient Israelites who are not Jews, who were pagans. They were pagans for 2000 years. The Old Testament tells us that they were pagans. It tells us when they went into paganism and they didn't come out of paganism until they were converted to Christianity. You know, that uh, verse there, nations and kings of the sons of Israel, I mean, that makes a lot more sense than the way that the King James has it. And it fulfills a prophecy that many nations would come from Abraham's loins and many kings would come from Abraham's loins and they would be the, the sons of Israel. So, so that fits in there. And it, it, it's like, and it also fits in with, um, 
with the idea that the these nations have had lost their memory that they 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 they've forgotten it they think that um the the chosen people are, are the jews like that verse that uh, talks about um jacob have i loved esau have i hated but uh, it wasn't wasn't esau you know wasn't esau jacob's brother was wasn't he the one that um god loved and it, it's it's well, it's that's the way we are today <coughs> That, that's that that's the problem it is that the denominational churches and this has been going on since the second century in the second century gnosticism was injected into apostolic christianity which and and the jews persecuted um christianity apostolic christianity very heavily the original apostles were teaching Christian identity. James wrote his epistle, his single epistle, to the, the single epistle that we have surviving, let's put it that way, to the 12 tribes spread abroad. Okay. Paul wrote every one of his epistles, and this could be demonstrated through the language of the epistles themselves. Paul wrote every one of his epistles to people that were descended from the ancient Israelites who either departed from Palestine as early as the 15th century BC up to those who had been taken into captivity by the Assyrians as late as the first half of the 7th century BC because the Assyrian deportations of the Israelites started around um, probably around the 740 BC or thereabouts and didn't end until the time of Ashurbanipal in, in, in the middle of the 600s BC, maybe um, as late as 670 to 650 BC. And then the Babylonians had come and the Assyrians deported all of Israel and Judah except the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then the inhabitants of Jerusalem had a period of relative peace and isolation as Assyria declined and was destroyed. And until the time that the book of Nezar rose to power about 605 BC, the book of Nezar too. So, 20 years later, Jerusalem was destroyed and all of them were taken into captivity. The, the um, Paul, Paul of Tarsus had a dual education, something that was very rare at that time. Paul of Tarsus was a, a Judean. He wasn't a Jew properly. He was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin who was raised in Tarsus, a city of Colicia, which Strabo of Cappadocia in his geography talked about at length, and Strabo praised the virtues of the city of Tarsus. He considered it a major center of learning, and I believe he said it was second only to Alexandria. He may have said it was it was second to Alexandria and to Athens, I don't quite remember, but it was definitely one of the three most notable centers of learning 
in the Hellenistic world at that time. Strabo wrote only 50 years before Paul of Tarsus wrote, and maybe even a little less. So, so we see that um, Paul of Tarsus was raised in an, a, a city that was noted for its academics, for its, for its learning. And if you read Paul of Tarsus, he had also studied at the feet of Gamaliel, the great um, lawyer of Judea, lawyer and teacher of Judea in the first century. And Gamaliel is, he is, was indeed a very wise man, and that can be told from what's briefly mentioned of him in the book of Acts. I think it's in Acts chapter 5. Well, well Paul had a, an education in the Hebrew Scriptures and the Old Testament law in Jerusalem, but he also had a classical education and his writing reveals that he had a, a thorough classical education, not just a superficial one. He had quoted, cited, made allusions to many of the different writers found in, in the Greek and Roman classics that survive, that survive to us today. I'm sure that he used more analogies from the classical writers than, than we can even understand. Because in the first century, there was an even greater um, amount of classical literature surviving than, than, we have, than, than we have surviving to us today. A lot of classical literature has actually been lost since the first century. So Paul of Tarsus was an educated man, and he had an education peculiar to the role that he fulfilled. Because we have these lost tribes, these so-called lost tribes of Israel. The Phoenicians were primarily Israelites, and, and my work establishes that. I have essays and podcasts on my website that establish that. And the Trojans had also descended from the ancient Israelites, at least in great degree, and so did the Danan Greeks, and so did the Dorian Greeks. Of course, the Ionian Greeks did not, and they were the, the Greeks of, of the coast of Anatolia and Athens. They did not. But, but the, um, the Galatians are the Galatahi. They are descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. So these are the people that Paul brought his gospel, his gospel to. These are the people he wrote his epistles to. And in his epistles, throughout his epistles are proofs that he was speaking to descendants of those ancient dispersed Israelites. Once you understand that, then you can understand Paul of Tarsus. And if you don't understand that, then you have to twist the language of Paul of Tarsus and presume, and it's a false presumption, that he's bringing this message to Gentiles who are not Israelites, who did not descend from the ancient Israelites. And that dispute is what began the persecution of Christianity in the first century, if you read the late accounts in the book of Acts, 
from Acts chapter um, 20, 21, 22, you'll see that Paul makes his final um, trip to Jerusalem and he's arrested in the temple and the Jews are going to kill him. They want to stone him and a Roman captain rescues him from that situation. But once the Roman captain realizes that Paul is an educated man, that, that he spoke fluent Greek, the, he gave him the opportunity to address the people of Jerusalem. And when Paul said, he, he, he preached the message of the gospel briefly, and he said that it was his, his duty to take this to distant nations. Paul understood that those distant nations were those dispersed Israelites of ancient times. The people of Jerusalem hated him for that. They wanted to kill him right there. That's clearly recorded in the book of Acts. That's the point at which they wanted to kill him. Those people of Jerusalem were primarily not Israelites. A great number of them were Edomites and Canaanites, and they are the Jews of today. That is why in Romans chapter 1, Paul had told the Romans that they had the truth of God and changed it into a lie. That can only be described of ancient Israelites. That is why in Romans chapter 4, Paul discusses the promises made to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. Paul understood that that promise was indeed fulfilled. It had been fulfilled and that Paul was taking the message of the fulfillment to that, of that promise and the gospel of Christ to those nations. That's the message in Romans chapter 4. Then in Romans chapter 9, as you said, Paul was a nationalist. In Romans chapter 9, Paul said that not everybody in Israel is of Israel. And he goes on to compare Jacob and Esau because Paul knew that many of those people pretending to be Jews in Israel were really Edomites who were forcibly converted to Judaism as it is described in the histories of Flavius Josephus from, from 130 BC up until the time of Herod, when Herod the Edomite overtook the kingdom and, and the Edomites became the predominant segment of the population in, in about 40 BC. So Paul understood that history and he's describing it Rather poetically, in, in Romans chapter 9, he expresses concern only for his kinsmen according to the flesh. And then he says, not all these people in Israel are of Israel. He goes on to compare Jacob and Esau, states that God hated Esau. And then he discusses and makes a further comparison between Jacob and Esau and discusses them and describes them as vessels of destruction and vessels of mercy. And the vessels of mercy are the real Israelites in Palestine, the actual white men who, who descended from the same 12 tribes who, who maintain their racial purity 
They are his kinsmen according to the flesh that he's praying for, where the Edomites are those who denied and killed Christ. But there are certain mistranslations in scripture or or certain interpolations in scripture that obfuscate the truth. One of those mis one of those interpret interpolations or corruptions of scripture is at the very beginning of Romans chapter four. And Paul mentions, and he's speaking to the Romans, and he mentions Abraham, our forefather. And in all of the oldest Greek manuscripts, the Greek word is forefather. But in the manuscripts of the Middle Ages, upon which the King James Version was based, and, and most other modern versions of Scripture, the word isn't forefather. It's just father. And this Gnostic concept of spiritualizing words, that they have a spiritual meaning rather than a literal meaning, crept into Christianity from the second century AD, where father doesn't really mean father. So the Catholic Church will say, oh, Abraham is our spiritual father. But that's not what Paul was teaching in Romans chapter 4. Paul said that according to the promise, Abraham's seed will become many nations. The Catholic Church teaches that many nations became Abraham's seed, which is exactly the opposite of what Paul said in that chapter. Paul is teaching the fulfillment of that promise and professing that he is going to those nations who are the result of that promise. The Catholic Church has twisted all of that, and it's been twisted since the second century AD, because in the second century AD, the Jews, the Judaizers that Paul resisted, the Jews were teaching Christianity. They couldn't stop it, so they infiltrated it. Men like Justin Martyr, Justin Martyr in 160 AD was teaching replacement theology that Paul of Tarsus never taught. And Justin Martyr had learned his Christianity. He was a Samaritan, right? He learned his Christianity from the Jews in Jerusalem. They couldn't, that they couldn't stop Christianity, so they perverted it, they infiltrated it, they perverted it, and Paul of Tarsus himself warned of that very same thing in Acts chapter 22, or, or maybe it's in Acts chapter 20, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking there, Bill. Um, when he was when he was arrested, when Paul was arrested in the temple, and he was arrested in the temple for bringing supposed non-Israelites in there. I mean, he wouldn't have been doing that. He he wouldn't have been bringing in non-Israelites into the temple. It, it would have been the the twelve tribes that obviously weren't Judeans, the 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 Gentiles that he went to, the nations that he went to. Perhaps we should um, talk a little bit about that word uh, Gentiles. And what it actually means and, and, and how that's been twisted, because that that is a big help to understanding the, the true understanding of what's being talked about there. Right. That the Abraham seed were to become many nations. And 
the promise was fulfilled. And through history, through ancient history and through inscriptions, we can determine who those many nations are that Abraham's seed had become. That word Gentile is first, it, it's a made up word. It's not an English word. It was made up in, in the Geneva Bible for the Geneva Bible for the King James Bible. The Greek word is ethnos. And the best way to translate the word ethnos into English is as nation. The Hebrew word goyim. A goy is a nation. Goyim are nations. When Yahweh in the book of Genesis spoke to the wife of Isaac, to Rebekah, he said, two goyim are in thy womb. Two nations. So one of those nations was Israel, and the other of those nations was Esau. Two goyim are in thy womb. So the way the Jews, the modern Jews, use this word goyim is wrong. It, it's just wrong. It doesn't refer to non-Israelites. It never did. It's just a word for nations, whether they're Israelite or not. This word goyim was generally translated into the word ethnos in the Greek test in, in the Greek Septuagint. And that's also how the apostles used the term ethnos and, and how secular Greeks did, right? To describe the word nation. So many times when we see this word ethnoi, ethnoi is the plural, right? The, the nominative plural. When we see the word ethnoi in the Greek manuscripts, it's preceded by a definite article. Not always, but quite frequently. And the definite article indicates that particular nations are meant. Not just any nations, the nations, certain nations. One of those places is in Matthew 28. Matthew chapter 28, the great Christians love to quote to mean that Jesus said, go to everybody. That's not what Jesus said. He told the apostles to go to all of the nations, which means particular nations, not just any nations. And, and that word is very highly abused, especially throughout the epistles of Paul and translated as Gentiles and given an interpretation that Paul never intended for it to have. If you go to um, Romans chapter 15, you, you go to Romans chapter 15, and, and I'm, I'm going to find it right here and, and, and try to track it down. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Now I say, that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, meaning that he came as a circumcised Judean, for the truth of God, to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. That's the purpose of Christ 
as described by Paul of Tarsus. Now we go to Galatians chapter 4. And Paul is writing to Galatians. The Galatahi were actually a Germanic tribe, descendants of the ancient Cymri, who, who were held captive by the Assyrians. Well, the Cymri, that word Cymri comes from the word Amri, who was a notable king of ancient Israel. And the Assyrians referred to the Israelites as the Bit Cymri the house of Amri. And that is the word that gives us Chimerians and the Greeks later called the Chimerians Galatahi and, and understood that they were also Scythians or Saka. So in, in Galatians chapter four, Paul says, and, and he's speaking to the Galatians and, and says that he describes the, the air the heir of the covenant as a child being under the law and says, even so, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, meaning Christ made of a woman minister to circumcision made under the law to redeem them that were under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons, which really is another mistranslation. It should be position of sons. You can have a son and he's not in your will because he didn't merit a position as a son because he was disobedient. But once your son is obedient and comes back into your will, he again is seated in his appropriate position in his place. At, at, as your son, so that he becomes uh, once again your heir. You're not going to leave all, all of your worldly goods to a disobedient son. So that is the portrayal and the use of that word in scripture, which is misinterpreted in, in all of the mainstream sources. In Romans chapter 9, Paul explicitly states that the and and i'm actually looking for the passage so that i could do a little more than, than merely paraphrase it paul prays for israelites and he says those who are israelites to whom pertains the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of god and the promises so paul is applying these Old Testament promises to these people who are actually Israelites, not just to anybody. If we take Paul's words seriously, we understand covenant theology and we must rebuke and refute the idea of universalism because it's false. Paul was never teaching universalism. But they'll take other passages, the Judeo-Christians, the mainstream translators take, and, and commentators take other passages of Paul and twist them out of this context to make it sound like Paul was going to everybody and it didn't matter who you were anymore. And that's not true. 
That's not true at all. If you go to Luke chapter one, to the very end of Luke chapter one, if you understand that Luke was the companion of Paul throughout the last um, decade of his life, Luke was was a frequent companion of Paul, and Luke actually stayed with Paul the whole time he was under arrest in Jerusalem, until he was brought to Rome, until he was executed, where Luke probably wrote out his gospel and the book of Acts, or, or finished the records and compiled them into these books we have today. And, and Luke records the, the purpose of the Christ in the words of Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist. And, and, and he says that God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, because Christ had, by prophecy and reality, been born in the house of David, as he was supposed to be as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, which that word world means merely society. Cosmos means society. The prophets weren't around at, at the beginning of the planet. They were around at the beginning of the Israelite society, that we should be saved, which is the white, the ancient white society, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham, period. That's the purpose of Christianity as stated in the gospel of Luke chapter one. And that's exactly what Paul stated in Romans chapter 15 and in Galatians chapter four. So we have to imagine, is Paul a freaking idiot that contradicted himself all the time? Or must Paul's other statements be reevaluated and interpreted in a means, in a manner that is consistent with these statements? Which is it? Do we assume that Paul constantly contradicted himself? Or do we simply understand that in the context in which he wrote, he wasn't contradicting himself at all, but the way that we have been taught is wrong. The way that we have been taught to interpret this word Gentile, the way that we have been taught to interpret this word Jew, these ways are just wrong. And it's because of one reason. Christianity has always been interpreted through the Jewish filter. We have to remove the Jewish filter and take a, a, a raw look, a fresh and raw look at ancient history. And when we do that, and at the Greek language and at the Greek translations, the translations of these passages from Greek, when we do that, we realize that Christian identity is true. It's right out there in the in the open, really, Bill. I mean, how, how often do you hear Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, and 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 that's what he was. But it, it's it's the Gentiles, the specific Gentiles, the specific nations, the nations that were promised to Abraham through Isaac. That that's who he was, the apostle to. But because of this mistranslation, they just think, oh, Gentiles. It means everyone. <laughs> 
It doesn't. It's the Gentiles. Right. Absolutely. And that's what Paul taught. That's what he taught in, in that's what we learn in Acts chapter nine that I that I cited a proper translation of. That's what we learn in Acts chapter twenty six. That that's what we learn in in Romans chapter one, Romans chapter four, Romans chapter fifteen. Um, that's what we learn in in one Corinthians chapter ten. How about that one? In, in 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing Dorian Greeks. The Corinthians are predominantly, I mean, there may have been some Romans or other people among them, but the, the people of Corinth were predominantly Dorian Greeks. And, and I demonstrated that in history. A lot of people don't think it's true because Corinth was destroyed by the Romans in the first century BC. But Caesar rebuilt it and had mercy on it and restored it. And the full inference from that should be that these Corinthians are, once again, Dorian Greeks. Dorians inhabited that whole region um, while Corinth was being rebuilt. There should be little doubt that these people are basically Dorian Greeks. And when you understand the history of the Dorian Greeks... In antiquity, it becomes very clear that they are Israelites, that they came from Palestine. They were brought by Heracles, who was a Phoenician. <laughs> that they, they were brought by sea and, and landed in the Peloponnesus and conquered it from the Danans. When you look at Homer, he doesn't mention the Dorians at all in Greece. There are no Dorians in Homer's Greece anywhere. They're not in the north. They're not in Greece. You know where they are in Homer? They're on the island of Crete. He only mentions them once in the Iliad and, and, and I'm sorry, in the Odyssey, I believe. And they're on the island of Crete. I have the citations in my paper on, on the Dorian Greeks, the, the appropriate citations. I'm pretty sure it was the Odyssey they were mentioned in. They're not in Greece. They're on Crete. What's Crete? Crete is a staging area from which they staged there. They came from Palestine to Crete and used that to stage their invasion of Greece. That's exactly what it is. And the Dorians conquered um, the Peloponnesus from the Danans in about two generations after the Trojan War, according to the, the ancient records that of Thucydides and 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 the other um, epic poets and and tragic poets that mentioned it, the Dorian invasion, and I have that in I have those citations in my paper on the Dorian Greeks also. Well, well, anyway, that's a digression. But the Dorian Greeks are Israelites, and that's proven in Flavius Josephus. And in the books of the Maccabees, where the king of Sparta wrote a letter to the high priest at Jerusalem long before the Edomite takeover of Jerusalem, probably about 160 BC. And the king of Sparta is recorded as having said that he knew that he was of the seed of Abraham, that he knew that the Spartans, the Lacedaemonians, who are Dorians, had descended from the seed of Abraham. 
and was looking to make an alliance with the people of Jerusalem who were becoming a notable force. And he probably wanted to hope that they also helped him overthrow the Macedonian overlords. That, that's my opinion as, as his motive. But he was making an alliance based on the fact that they were kin, that they were what were clo- in close kinship with one another, and he knew it. So this is um, that 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 this is very well established with an honest look at ancient history. But it's not taught in schools. It's not taught in schools because it's not. It's contrary to the Jewish agenda and Jewish claims of their identity and, and Jewish claims that they're the, the, the people that have this heritage. And that's a lie. That's why it's not taught in schools, because Jews control Christian academia and they have controlled Christian academia for over a thousand years. That's why this isn't taught in schools. But it's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That Paul said, moreover, brethren, I would not that you be ignorant how that all our fathers, that means Paul's fathers and the Corinthians fathers, were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So Paul is telling these Corinthians that it is with Moses. And this can indeed be established in classical history, but it's not taught in schools. And if I said this to any Protestant pastor, any Catholic priest, any Orthodox priest, they'd think I was nuts. But it's right here in black and white. They'll deny it. Then further on, and, and when I read this, I'm going to leave out a parenthetical remark. Because so many people, when they see a a parenthetical remark, they really can't (laughs) keep themselves directed at the overall context, and the parenthetical remark breaks the context. In verses 18 and 20, uh, I'm going to leave out verse 19, which is really parenthetical. Of the same chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, and he's speaking to the Corinthians, Behold, Israel after the flesh. What does that mean? That means Israel according to the flesh, the true Israelites. Behold, Israel according to the flesh are not they who eat of the sacrifices, partakers of the altar. But I say that the things which the nations, not Gentiles, the nations sacrifice. They sacrifice to devils and not to God. Paul is calling these nations who are practicing paganism in Europe, he's calling them Israel according to the flesh. And he's using a citation that goes all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy, I think, or it might be numbers. And he's applying that to these Israelites because it applied to Israelites then, and it applied to Israelites in Paul's time. 
How do, so, how do, so how? language in Paul, language throughout Paul, demonstrates that the people that he's going to are Israelites. And 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is like Romans 15 and Romans 1 and Romans 2 and Romans 4 and Galatians 4 demonstrates that Paul was teaching Christian identity. It's pretty specific talking about um, following the cloud and and passing through the river. How can anybody think that that's not talking about Israelites there? I don't don't know how the the church says. the, The church spiritualizes it all because... Well, well, first, that idea, as I've said, of spiritualizing words so that they mean something other than what they really mean, than what they literally mean, that idea is a Gnostic idea. It, it, it is not. That idea of spiritual seed, and, and it may have predated Gnosticism, but it is not a Christian idea. Yahweh God does not change, and the promises... In the New Testament, the words of the promises mean the same thing that they meant when those promises were given in the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The meaning of the words doesn't change just because they are now being reiterated in the New Covenant. Well, God says that it, he doesn't it, change, doesn't he? He says, his, you know, his word is his word and, and it doesn't change and it lasts for all time. So it can't change. It has to mean exactly the same thing when it was said that it does now. It can't be spiritualized. Absolutely. But that's why that they that the, the modern churches, Christian churches, they get rid of the old covenant. They'll tell you, oh, that's for the Jews. That don't really apply to us. But if that were true, Why did Paul cite the old covenant? Maybe I'm going to take, go out there and take a guess. Maybe a thousand times in his epistles, he quoted the old covenant. If it ain't a thousand, it's probably 500. I never counted, but it's like every chapter he's citing or alluding to the old covenant, the old Testament half a dozen times. In Ephesians, in Colossians, Paul is talking about reconciliation. Paul calls his ministry the ministry of reconciliation on frequent occasion. How would that apply to niggers and Chinamen? How would that apply to Gentiles? If the God of the Old Testament as the Old Testament frequently professes, only made himself known to the children of Israel and only knew the children of Israel and was only joined to them in a covenant relationship and put them off scattered them across the the known world at that time in punishment. That is why, because Christ came to reconcile himself to those same people. That is why Paul calls his ministry 
a ministry of reconciliation because that is his purpose and that's his only purpose. And all these abuses of these terms like whosoever and all men are being taken out of context. When Paul said whosoever, he's speaking about whosoever of those children of Israel, whosoever of those quote unquote lost sheep. When he says all men, he means all the men of Israel because they are the only subjects of these promises. They are the only subjects of his epistles. That there is proof throughout his epistles. And Paul taught against race mixing. And, and those passages are, are often poorly translated as well. Do you so think- these words, uh, Gentiles and, and Jew, that these words, they really don't belong in the scripture. Jew should always be Judean. Judea was a multi-ethnic Roman political province. Jew only means Judea. It never means Israelite. Even though there are references to Israel in Judea, in Judea like in Romans chapter 9, Jew is not synonymous with Israelite. The word Jew comes from the word Judea. It doesn't come from the word Judah. The word Gentile means nation. It almost always means nation. On rare occasion, it could be translated as heathen in in certain contexts, but it generally means nation. That the... um, the, the clarity of the language, once that is understood, that um, goes very far by itself to enable one to draw the appropriate lines and understand what Paul's ministry really was. When he was saying heathen, he was still meaning the, the Israelite nations in most instances, I think. I mean, as you said about... Um you know how how they they've been pagans for two thousand years. So even when it, even when it's talking about heathen, it, it's still talking about the the Israelite nations. Well, well, yes, absolutely. The, those who who right, those who haven't yet come to Christ would be considered heathens if they're still pagans, and and pagans today call themselves heathens, so they know. <laughs> <laughs> I personally yeah. know pagans that re- proud proudly use the term heathen to describe themselves, so they know. Yeah, good point. Good point. You're admitting it. Was it, was it was, so so was, this... Go on. I, I'm sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, all of this, this must have been a, a huge revelation for Paul to, to, to realize all of this, because that's the, the central point of his, of his mission and what he's talking about in all these epistles. It's absolutely central to it that we don't hear anything about this right up and uh, up until that point. It must have been like, like a, 
you know, like, like he'd suddenly seen the light, a, a eureka moment after he saw his vision of Christ and, and apparently spent time being instructed by Christ, but it must have been pointing this out. And then he must have realized all the connections that he'd been reading about with his, with his, uh, second education, with his education in Tarsus, where, where you said he'd been reading the Greek classics and all the rest of it. And he must have been able to put it all together with, with what he'd been learning from Gamaliel and what he'd been learning from, from the Old Testament and putting it all together and realizing that these, these nations, the, the European nations, that was the fulfillment of, of all these prophecies and all these promises in the Old Testament. Well, right. If you if you Paul had an awakening to um, Christ, okay, Paul, it cannot be established that Paul ever met Christ or his apostles during his early ministry before the crucifixion. That can't be established. Now, he he, we would like to think that he must have heard of Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarenes. Because all men, and Paul being a pious Hebrew, all men were required to go to Jerusalem to the temple three times a year at the Feast of First Fruits, at the Feast of um, Tabernacles, and, and at the Feast of Passover three times a year. So Paul, and, and we see throughout the book of Acts that he's headed to Jerusalem for a feast on several occasions. So he may not have made every one of them once he, he was conducting his ministry abroad, but he certainly seems to have at least tried and probably made a lot more than the ones that are mentioned. But that's, that, that's a digression. It's very plausible that Paul may have heard of Jesus of Nazareth before the crucifixion. But when Paul is in Jerusalem after the crucifixion, which we see from, I think it starts in about Acts chapter 8, I believe. I'm sorry, the, the very end of Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen, Paul is a jealous, zealous, is a zealous young Hebrew that really thinks that he is defending the proper tradition. So he begins to persecute these Christians whom, with the information that he has, he sees as a heresy, as a heresy among the Hebrews, the Israelites, right? The people in Judea, they're not all Israelites and that, that they all speak Hebrew, but they're not all Hebrews. The Canaanites can't really properly be considered Hebrews and neither can the Israelites. The, I'm sorry, the Edomites, because the Edomites are they're race mixed with Canaanites. So Paul thinks that he's defending tradition and he's doing it zealously and he's on his way to persecute Christians who are Judeans by their by their um, political nationality, who are Judeans in Damascus. So under the Roman Empire, the, um, the, the Judeans had a tetrarchy, but they also had um, political, a certain degree of political control over Judeans, no matter where they were in, within the empire. That, that's the way Roman law worked. 
So Paul goes to Damascus to persecute these Christians, and he has this event on the road of Damascus, which really shakes him up. And he doesn't really understand it, but he's, he's told to go to the house of this Ananias. And when we read Acts chapter 9, that message is the message that, that informs Paul and sets him off that he is to take the gospel of Christ to the nations and the kings of the sons of Israel. That's Paul's direction from that point forward. That coupled with that experience that he had and that communication he had on the road to Damascus and what he was formed by Ananias, that was enough for Paul to think, hey, I better rethink this scripture. How could this be true? And Paul spent three years restudying the scripture, and he was able to come to the realization of this ministry of reconciliation and, and this true purpose of the gospel of Christ and who it was to be brought to. He was able to come to that because of the fact that he also had a classical education. He was educated in, in the Hebrew scriptures and in the, the Greek classics, the classical literature of the time. So he was able to put it together from that, from that realization. But the light had to be turned on. The, the light had to be turned on and he had to go restudy the prophets and the law in order to understand that this Christian gospel was the message of reconciliation with God for the descendants of the ancient children of Israel so that the promises to the fathers could be fulfilled. That is the Christian message, period. And he understood, um, he said he understood all the prophecies from Hosea and, and Jeremiah because he, he's quoting all of those to show that, uh, these prophecies have all been fulfilled. And I don't think they would have, they would have understood what, what those prophecies were talking about until that time. Do you think? Because well, I mean, well, right. constantly <laughs> using them, isn't The he? prophets themselves say that they wouldn't understand un until the time came. Now that's the bit that's the bits that really get me is that all these quotes from Hosea and and Jeremiah and I, and I don't know if um if they actually link them to them when when Paul is quoting them I don't know if the Bible's actually link them link them back to those those prophecies where he's quoting them or whether they just say oh he's just using this language because when you look into that you realize that yes this is all it can be talking about is is Israelites? It doesn't apply to anybody else. How can Hosea and Jeremiah be making prophecies about people that aren't a part of uh, the house of Judah or the house of Israel? They can't be. So well, how how could they come fulfilled in people that weren't part of those houses? Well, well, right. That's exactly true. And and the the there are other prophecies of the New Testament in Scripture that that are found in Ezekiel and and in a few of the minor prophets. But <clears throat> when I say New Testament, I really mean New Covenant. So while there are other prophecies of the New Covenant in Scripture, the major prophecy of the New Covenant is found in Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's very explicit. And it's a, it, Paul quotes it 
verbatim. He alludes to it in Romans, but he quotes it verbatim in Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews is not addressed to Jews, okay? It's addressed to Hebrews. And Paul did that for a very specific reason, because most of the Judeans are not properly Hebrews. So he never wrote an epistle to the Judeans. He only cares about his kinsmen according to the flesh in Judea. So he writes an epistle addressed to Hebrews, to the people of the Old Testament who were actually under the covenant in the Old Testament. And the entire epistle is predicated on that. And he, he explains that a new covenant was the purpose of the old covenant because the old covenant wasn't perfect. It relied on the deeds of men and men are always going to fail, but God doesn't fail. So Paul, after explaining that in different terms, and, and after explaining that God doesn't um, fail to keep his promises in different terms, in Hebrews chapter 8, he, he goes on and he says that finding fault with them, he says, behold, and he's quoting Jeremiah, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So the house of Israel and the house of Judah are the children of the fathers that were in the Exodus. That's what the terms mean. A house in ancient um, language in the Old Testament, a house of a patriarch was the descendants and family of that patriarch who remained in, in that ancestral land. That, that is a house. And they were put off purposely out of that land in punishment. And this is a promise of reconciliation with those same people. That is the new covenant. The new covenant is nothing more than what the prophet said it would be. Paul of Tarsus says in a very mistranslated passage in Galatians chapter 3, very mistranslated and very misunderstood for that reason. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul said that no man can make additions to the covenant for himself. You can't add to the covenants of God for your own benefit. You can't imagine that this covenant, this new covenant, can be anything more than what Jeremiah said it was. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, with the same people who were under the old covenant. And Paul says, going back to Galatians chapter 4, that Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. Because in the ancient Hebrew Weltanschauung worldview, when your fathers were committed to something and committed themselves to something, they were committing all of their descendants. You belong to your fathers. So 
you are committed to this by what your fathers agreed to. You have no way out of it. You are not your own, as Paul taught in, in Corinthians. You are not your own. You are bought with a price because you belong to God because your ancient fathers committed you to God. You have no choice in the matter. I often think if you take um, if you take time out, out of the equation, you know the whole concept of time. We would still all be connected up to Adam. So when the promise is made, and and this is why when it talks about um, you know the, the seed and and it come from the loins of of Isaac, you, know, you can go all the way back to being in the loins of Isaac. And if you were to take time out out of it, you'd all still be connected. You'd all still be connected up up to Isaac. So whatever promises are made to Isaac or, and again, with, um, with the tribe of Judah and the ones that came from Moses, that the, the, um, the covenant that they made, the promises they made, uh, to, to keep the law and, and they brought curses down upon themselves if, if they didn't keep it, you know, that applied to all of them because, because they right. were still within the loins of the person that made that promise. Absolutely. That's absolutely true. And that's, that's the significance of Isaac being sacrificed by Abraham. That's why Yahweh demanded that Abraham sacrifice Isaac. Yahweh knew that Isaac wasn't going to be killed, that he wasn't going to let it that far, get that far. Abraham, on the other hand, believed Yahweh that his seed would come through Isaac and become many nations. So Abraham didn't know what was going to happen, but he believed God and had faith in God. And at the moment that Abraham offered his son, Isaac, to Yahweh on the altar, from that moment, Isaac and everything in his loins became the property of God. Abraham was ceding his parental control, his fatherly authority and basically ownership of his son, Abraham was ceding that to God at that moment. And all world history has revolved around the people in Isaac's loins since that point. The other Adamic nations were pushed to the margins and the seed of Isaac became the center and the central point and, and the crux of history where Yahweh God would use them to fulfill his will in the world. And that's for good and for bad because in the loins of Isaac are Jacob and Esau, the vessel of mercy through which the promises would be fulfilled and the vessel of destruction. The Esau was the Adamic man who had allied himself with the devil. But when he race mixed, that's exactly what he did. So we have the fleshly man and the spiritual man in an analogy. And that analogy is the fates of the descendants of Jacob and Esau. That once all of this is realized, once all of this, once covenant theology is properly taught and understood. It's Christian identity is the only truth of scripture and Christian identity 
is truth because it believes all these words. It understands how this actually happened historically, and it understands the consequences of it. We believe every word of the prophets and, and, and the apostles. Once they're properly translated and once the interpolations are removed and, and, and the other problems are ironed out with the manuscripts, we believe all this and we believe it literally. When Paul said seed to the Corinthians, sperma, when Paul said father to the Corinthians, patros, the Corinthians understood and the Romans understood the literal meaning of those terms, not some spiritual esoteric meaning. They didn't understand that. They weren't Gnostics. Paul's words had to be understood on practical, everyday terms. Paul was speaking practical, everyday language to practical, everyday people. He wasn't writing um, esoteric dissertations to, to a group of insiders that had different understandings of the meanings of these terms. That wasn't Paul. He was writing letters to everyday people and, and trying to explain to them the purposes of, of, of the New Testament, the New Testament, the New Covenant, as it was given in the ancient promises in the words of the prophets. So seed means seed. Seed means offspring. Father means father. And, and <laughs> Gentile means nation or, or ethnos means nation. Once you, once you understand it, especially that bit about Jacob and Esau, I mean, the, the whole of history makes sense then, the animosity between Jews and against us, that makes sense. And you can see it all playing out in history and, and understand why the world is the way that it is. And, and this is the only, the only explanation for it that, that, you know, rings true. And, and the more you look into it, the more you, the more you discover new things that also add to it and, and confirm the truth of it. You know, that, that's what I've discovered since first coming across Christian identity is, you know, the, the more I learn about the world, the, the more it confirms the fact that the Christian identity is the truth or the closest that, that we can get to the truth. If you think about truth as, a, as an abstract term there. But the, the, the more you, the more you study it, the more you learn about life, the more you learn about the world, the more this gets confirmed as, as being accurate and being true. Well, well, absolutely. And, and it's, you, you know, I, I didn't come to this in spite of history or, or in spite of, of Greek language or Hebrew language. I came to this after many years of study of, of history and Greek language and Hebrew language. And, and scripture and apocryphal literature and ancient inscriptions. It, it's all of my conclusions are based on those studies and on a common sense narrative, which has been extracted from those studies. That that's the way I see it. And, and it took me two or three years of study to be 100% absolutely sure that what we call two seed line, but which I, I see a little differently, Christian identity is the truth, or as you said, as close as we could possibly get to the truth. The major tenets of, of what, what I teach at Christagenia 
are never going to be upset. And that might sound um, arrogant of me, but I've read enough of all the literature that we could have. I've studied enough of all of the understanding of Hebrew and Greek that we can 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 conjure to, to understand that the basic structure of history and Christianity, the way we see it in Christian identity is true. And that is the solid foundation that Christ spoke of upon which a man should build his house. If he builds his house on a solid foundation, it won't be shaken. It won't be washed away in a storm. It's the only explanation that makes that makes sense. You know, why else would Europeans, you know, um, suddenly start following Christianity? You know, it's, it, it's not like it was it was forced upon them. Uh, there was a instance in the in the uh, Baltics that wasn't until the eleventh or the twelfth century. It's not like it was brought to them by foreigners. I mean, we've got foreigners coming to our shores now, and and we resist them. We resist the Jews, we resist the Muslims, we resist the Negroes, and and we accepted Christianity. I mean, in Britain, it was that was the first country to accept it, and and that was a completely peaceful transition. And the records of the time say that uh, the, the British people there never was a time when they weren't actually following these precepts. That it was a new it was a new thing in Asia, but in Britain there never was a time when they weren't following these these same precepts and and the only reason that could be is is if they originally came from the same place you look at the the druids there's so many similarities between the druids and uh, and the levites right down to it being a, a hereditary profession and they had to show their genealogy they had sacrifices sin sacrifices they believed in eternal life and th these are records that julius caesar wrote about them a guy that was writing negative propaganda about them and saying that this was the difference that they had between them and and, uh, and and Caesar and, and these Romans. And they refused to bow down and worship Caesar. They thought that was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, and who was it that, that refused to do that? It was it was the Britons and it and it was the Gauls. It was it was the people that followed followed the Druids. And it wasn't until much later that you had these um you know Saxon pagan ideas, Viking pagan ideas that came along a lot a lot later after this 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 Druid idea which can be traced right back to the Old Testament. So the more you look into history, the more you, I find, the more I look into the history of Britain, the more it confirms that, that this is the truth. And this is why our ancestors followed it, because that was prophecy as well. That's all fulfillment of prophecy that we would. That we would forget our name, we would forget who we are, we'd forget all about it, and then we would, we, we would come to the truth again. Well, well right. I mean, if, if you understand the spread of Christianity, I, I mean, Pliny the Younger, he, he was afraid that he was going to have to, and this is the first decades of, of the second century AD, Pliny the Younger was afraid that he was going to have to execute tens of thousands of, of Christians who wouldn't worship the emperor and, and wouldn't deny their faith. And, and that was just in Bithynia. That was only in Bithynia and Pontus, where, where he was the governor. One small um, Roman province on, on the coast of the Black Sea. The, the, um, the Goths, 
the Allens, that they accepted Christianity without it being forced on them. Nobody forced it on them. And, and they accepted Christianity long before they came into the, those portions of, of Europe that were ever under the auspices of the Romans. They had already accepted Christianity. And they accepted it before the Romans did. So, so it, it's, um, it, it's very evident that our people had naturally given up their paganism and accepted Christianity, even if it wasn't the Catholic form, of, because the Goths were Aryan Christians, even if it wasn't the Catholic or, or the Orthodox version of Christianity, it was still Christianity. And they readily gave up paganism for it. And and that happened for, for hundreds of years, that process. Well, it's like the verse that you said, that um, Paul said about the, about the hopes of our fathers. I mean, it must be is it centuries back. They knew what was going on. And then it's just been forgotten, forgotten over time. But that hope was there originally. And the promises were there for the, for exactly the same people. And Paul was, Paul was bringing it to those people and they accepted it and became, and became Christian in the fulfillment of the prophecy. And history is, has revolved around us ever since and pretty much revolved around us before then as well. When you, when you, when you look at it, you look, if you look at, um, uh, the original land of Canaan or Israel and Judah, right in the center of the world where, where all the, um, trade routes crossed over. Right, right in the center there, in, in the center of everything, and and think and, of the chances of um, having Flavius Josephus' history, which covers it all. We've got hardly any history, as you mentioned earlier, Bill. We've got so much of the of the Greek and and Roman world was lost to us, yet we've got Flavius Josephus that tells us all the history of that and corroborates the Bible. Now that's amazing in right. itself. More significantly, Paul of Tarsus was an educated man, and he knew about. Ethiopians and he knew about Arabians and, and he knew about Egyptians and, and he knew about all these other peoples that had already been polluted racially. He never wrote an epistle to one of them. There's no epistle of Paul to the Ethiopians. There's no epistle of Paul to the Egyptians or any other polluted, racially polluted group of people. Paul only took his message to white tribes and particular white tribes who were in Europe and Anatolia. Anatolia, I mean modern Turkey, which used to be all Greek and Roman at those times. In those days, it was all Greek and Roman or, or, or Galatian, which is Germanic. And there was very hardly anybody else there but Greeks, Romans, and Germans at that time. So Paul took his message to these particular groups that we could consider European and never to anybody else. It was called Asia at the time, wasn't it? Asia Minor, Anatolia? Um, part, of, part of Anatolia was called Asia, yes. The western part was called Asia, but not all of Today, it's called Asia Minor in that same usage, but part of it was called Asia. And, and Paul went there because it was, it, it was populated by um, 
the descendants of the ancient Phoenicians who were Israelites, and 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 then by Ionians who who were not part of the promises and covenants. When Paul talked to the people of Athens in Acts chapter 17, he didn't mention Jesus or covenants. He talked to them on a broader with broader terminology that goes back to the Adam of Genesis, but not in relation to anything that belonged specifically to the children of Israel. That's why, because they weren't Israelites, they were Jephethite. The Ionians, Ionian, that word Ionia comes from the Hebrew word Javan, J-A-V-A-N in Genesis chapter 10. And the Persians called the Ionians after the same term, Yavana. And that Yavana, if we look at the vowels, becomes Iowan, which is the, the Septuagint spelling of Javan. And that's Ionians. And, and that's what the Persians called them. And that's what the Hebrews called them. So that's why we have Javan, a son of Japheth, being the ancestor of the Greeks who inhabit um, Crete and, and Rhodes, the Rhodians, and other areas where we find Ionian Greeks. So they were not um, subjects of the covenant. So when Paul talked to them, he talked to them on broader biblical terms relating back to Genesis, but he never talked to the Ionians about um, the, the actual covenants or about Jesus or repentance or reconciliation. He couldn't because they weren't Israelites. So Paul's, and, and this also happened with um, the Laodicaeans, I think, in, in Acts chapter 14, that they were descended probably from Phrygians. I'm, I'm just trying to, I vaguely, vaguely <laughs> recall this. In, in Iconium, Lystra and Derbe, that they weren't um, Lycaonians. The, the Lycaonians, they weren't Israelites either. So when Paul spoke to them in Acts chapter 14, he spoke to them on broader terms and not about Christ or the covenant. So Paul's interaction with these other Europeans who are not descended from the tribes of Israel, the Lycaonians and the Ionians, that also proves Christian identity. Because Paul wouldn't talk to them about Jesus and, and, and the covenants and obedience to the law and things that he talked about to the Romans and the Corinthians who were Israelites. So if you read Acts 14, Paul talked to the Lycaonians on broader terms. If you read Acts 17, Paul talked to the Athenians on broader terms. That also helps to establish that the truth of our Christian identity profession. Once you understand all this history, all these little pieces fall right into place. It just takes years of study to get the history. And those other, um, those uh, other Adamites and and Javetites, I mean, they they had the way pointed to the tree of life, didn't they? Right, right at the beginning, and they had the promise through yes. through Adam. Yes, they're included in a broader promise that was originally made to our race. They just don't have that special relationship with with 
Yahweh God that only the Israelite portion of the race has. But they still have the same spirit. They're still made of the same stuff. A spirit breathed into Adam's nostrils, the living soul. Yes, sir. The eternal Adamic spirit. And I think on that point, we should probably call it a day. And and this is part nine, I believe. Yeah, so yeah part nine. Perhaps you could see what sort of questions arise or, or what sort of feedback is given and and we could predicate part 10 on that if if you want i mean well i think it'd be good to do a little look at um yeah it'd be good to have a look at um revelation the book of revelation and and the early church if you, you know if you can sum up some of christ reich and if we can talk about That'll some work. of that i think that will work an enough. outline of christ reich that'd be cool that'd be great if i could squeeze that into an hour and a half or two hours <laughs> <laughs> that'll be a challenge for you <laughs> yes sir thank you sven and praise yahweh thank you bill god bless